Welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 5, Guards, Guards. I always feel like it has to be said, Guards, Guards, you know. <laughs> as it is said many times throughout the actual novel. Yes, it, it does. The, the name of the novel is actually said many times in this novel. Guards, Guards is the eighth Discworld novel published in 1989, and it is the first novel in the City Watch series. I wanted us to read this one next, not only because the City Watch holds a special place in my heart, but also because I wanted to introduce something that was a completely different style and vibe than the Rincewind books to demonstrate the range of the Discworld series. While the Rincewind novels parody Sword and Sorcery and Weird Sisters parody Shakespeare, the City Watch books are much more invested in what I'm going to call the fantasy noir genre. In fact, Guards Guards might be the first example of this genre ever written. I was going to recommend it to you later on in the podcast. The tone and the writing style of this, especially like the uh, like investigation parts, really reminds me of the Irish YA magic urban fantasy series Skullduggery Pleasant by Derek Landy. See, and I read those before I ever read Pratchett, so I'm like, oh, this reminds me of Skullduggery Pleasant, when in reality it would be Skullduggery Pleasant reminds one of Discworld. But I think you'd really, really enjoy it, Tessa. The main character is a talking, living skeleton called Skullduggery Pleasant, and the other main character is a sassy teenage girl called Valkyrie Kane, and they solve magical crimes together. It's really good. I would say if you read them, don't read any further than book nine, because that's originally where the series ended, and then he came back years later and started writing a, a new series in the world, and it just, like, it feels like the magic has gone away from it. That sounds like something I would be really into. And in fact, I would definitely say that there's a lot of urban fantasy that not necessarily is imitating the tone of this, but it's definitely influenced by it. So there have been numerous adaptations of this novel. There's been a six-episode serial on BBC Radio 4, a stage play for the amateur stage, a professional stage play, a big comic version of Guards Guards, an audio play presented live at Dragon Con in 2001, a video game that's really loosely based on the plot of this book with Rincewind substituted for Sam Bimes, which sounds like a really strange way of adapting this plot, a board game, and then of course this past year there was a short BBC series called The Watch, which was pretty universally disliked. I haven't seen any of these things or played the game, but there's been lots of adaptations of this book. To quickly summarize, Guards Guards takes place mainly in the famed city of Ankh-Morpork. Everyone on the disc thought that the legendary dragons were just that, legends. But when one of them begins to appear out of thin air to terrorize the city of Ankh-Morpork, Captain Samuel Vimes of the almost defunct Nightwatch is one of the few people to realize that things are not as they seem. A crime has been committed, a crime involving magical theft, a secret society, swamp dragons, and a plot to reinstate the monarchy. Along with the three remaining members of the Night Watch, Sergeant Colin, Corporal Nobbs, and trainee Constable Carrot, Vimes is on the case. 
my initial reaction, like from reading the start of the uh, the book, I was like, it's got a really, really strong opening paragraph. This is where the dragons went. They lie, not dead, not asleep, not waiting, because waiting implies expectation. Possibly the word we're looking for here is dormant. And although the space they occupy isn't like normal space, nevertheless they are packed in tightly. Not a cubic inch there is, but is filled by a claw, a talon, a scale, the tip of a tail. So the effect is like one of those trick drawings, and your eyeballs eventually realize that the space between each dragon is, in fact, another dragon. They could put you in mind of a can of sardines if you thought sardines were huge and scaly and proud and arrogant. And presumably, somewhere, there's a key. I really like that, and I really enjoyed the whole, like, back and forth between the members of the Brotherhood of Elucid, uh, the Elucidated Brotherhood of Eben Knight, whatever their name is, you know, Brother Doorkeeper, Brother Fingers, uh, Brother Dunnykin. And then when we got to where they introduced Sam Vimes, I was like, and I know you like Sam Vimes, but it's also like, I didn't, at the start, Vimes at the start is introduced to us as a very, like, this is very noir. And we're going to talk about all the noir references in this particular novel, especially when it comes to Vimes. But the beginning of this is very, like, he's drunk in the gutter, right? Singing singing to himself. He was brung low by a woman, right? And that woman is the city, which is a very noir type of metaphor to make. So it, it's trying very... It's really interesting to me to be able to talk about this with you because Vimes himself, all of these characters really have a giant arc in the watch books. Like they all, I think more than almost any other character, or I should say more than almost any other set of characters in the Discworld have character growth. Like some of the characters, even the really good ones in the other books, don't really grow as much as characters. They're kind of more static. These characters have a lot ahead of them, basically, in terms of both plot and in terms of character growth. So it's interesting that you just dislike Vimes so much at the beginning. Is it because of the alcoholism? Is it because of the noir references? I think I think it's because of the alcoholism. And it's like, I'm kind of naturally averted to characters like that in fiction. As someone who's struggled with alcohol issue like abuse issues it's really i don't know it's tough to see and most of the time it's just not done very well but it's also like you know this is a noir book captain vimes has to be a washed up alcoholic because he has to or he is one because he has to be because that's what the conventions of the genre demand you know it's not up until i i'd say around when Carrot starts the fight at the mended drum and when he meets Sybil Ramkin, where you know, where he starts going, you know, this isn't a wading bird. Cause like by the end of it I was like, Wow, Sam Vimes is a great character, I love him. But at the start I was just like, Oh, okay. Yeah, it seems like the start of this book is really playing into noir tropes. And then it sort of starts to transform them and really play with them near the end of the book, more than it does at the beginning, I think. But let's let's back up a little bit, though, because I want to talk about a couple of things before we talk about Vimes as a character and the, the City Watch. 
So the first thing I wanted to mention, you read the first paragraph of this book. I also want to draw your attention to the dedication of this book, which is, I think about this dedication sometimes when I think about just great dedications. So the dedication is like a whole paragraph. They may be called the palace guard, the city guard, or the patrol. Whatever the name is, their purpose in any work of heroic fantasy is identical. It is around chapter three, or ten minutes into the film, to rush into the room, attack the hero one at a time, and be slaughtered. No one ever asked them if they wanted to. This book is dedicated to those fine men. And also to Mike Harrison, Mary Gentle, Neil Gaiman, and all the others who assisted with and laughed at the idea of L-Space. Too bad we never used Schrodinger's paperback. That is just like a great dedication. I love the like meta humor of the idea that we're actually going to see a fantasy novel from the perspective of the guards, you know, that usually are just sort of fodder for the hero. I love the idea that he brings up the L space and he, he's definitely friends with Neil Gaiman by this point. It's just a delightful dedication. Yeah, 100%. It's also really refreshing when you see the dedications in books that aren't specifically like, oh, this is for, you know, my family or my friends or blah, blah, blah. Where they, you know, make something kind of funny with it. There's a Skullduggery Pleasant, but I think it's book eight of Skullduggery Pleasant, where it's like, this book is dedicated to me. After all, I wrote them all. <laughs> a series of unfortunate events dedications are dedicated to Beatrice, a character within the series. And I think it's the one in the first book. Have you read the book? I haven't, but I know that they're all for Beatrice. Yeah, okay. I've seen the I've seen both the film adaptation and the first season of the Netflix series. Okay, okay, that okay. Just, I'll get back to that in a second. Yeah, I think the one in the first book is like to D- to Beatrice, darling, dearest, dead. I did know that like he keeps because I remember because the narrator is played by Jude Law, I think, in the, in the film, yeah. Film, and then he's played by Patrick Warburton, yeah, in the te- television in the Netflix series. Which Patrick Warburton has one of the best voices for narration. I mean, I just love Patrick Warburton's voice. I was. But... I started rewatching the show last night. Yeah, and this is to do with why I sent you a message that said, "Hey Tessa, waves gone around." <laughs> I've thought of the best way to adapt to Discworld, and it's not with the camera cutaways of Taika Waititi. It is with the narrator walking on screen, a la Netflix's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Can it be Patrick Warburton? I'd see, I thought about that because he has a great voice, but I don't think Patrick Warburton would fit like what I imagine the narrator of Discworld to be. I think someone maybe like Brian Blessed. He did Flash Gordon. You know, Gordon's alive! Which, funnily enough, this this will tie in, the Gordon's Alive reference will tie into a reference I picked up on later in the book, so stay tuned for that, listeners. Stay tuned for more observations. This book as well, I thought, to make a point, I don't know how much you, like, I don't want to kind of like denigrate you as a reader of Discworld because you're far more versed in it. But this one, I don't know how well you might have picked up on how well this parodies old British sitcoms. Probably not. You're an American, you know? 
yeah, whereas like because my father was English, is English, I suppose he is still alive, but like I mean, eh, you know, but he's English, and so like I grew up watching old British sitcoms, things like um Only Fools and Horses, Open All Hours, both of which starred David Jason, who of course uh played Rincewind. Everything is connected. You know, things like that. Porridge, which David Jason was in also, I believe. I was really raised. I think it was the first episode of Monkey I did where I talked about the music that I got my first CDs, where it was like Queen, The Beatles, and Johnny Cash. So that was the music I was raised on. And then the TV I was raised on was old British sitcoms and old British game shows. The original um, Roy Walker catchphrase, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire with Chris Tarrant, things like that. This book really does an awful lot of playing into those tropes with like the way the characters talk and also like that first scene where the Supreme Grandmaster is talking to them and then like Brothers, Doorkeeper, Watchtower, uh, Fingers and Dunnykin start going off and they literally speak for like two and a half pages amongst themselves and then it's like the next paragraph just like cuts back to like the Supreme Grandmaster watched all of this and it's like that's exactly how the like system work the way the trolls work you know like it does act as in kibber as in where it literally good day good day what is all of this that is going on here in this place is what it literally translates to but it's literally the old stereotype of a british bobby going hello hello what's all this then uh you mean the dwarf speak i think you said troll oh did i Oh yes, no, sorry. I'm thinking of um the troll splatter outside of Detritus. Uh, yes, that's where I'm. That was so funny. Would you be surprised if I told you that Detritus is an important part of the Watch books? I really hope so. But just that footnote was so funny. A, a, a splatter is like a bouncer, but just with more force. <laughs> Yeah, there's some really great humor in here. And I love that you're bringing in the British sitcom of it because, yeah, I have no reference for that. I have a much more firm grasp on all of the noir references that are in this book and all the like the detective fiction references. But I had no idea that there was a lot more like sitcom vibes to this. Here's the thing. Your next episode of Monkey, go watch some old British sitcoms. Actually, that's the thing. Look, that's where I felt it the most. You know all the fake French that they put in where it's spelt phonetically? Yes! Like, Serche la femme, things like that. That's exactly ripped out of things like Only Fools and Horses. The main character, Del Boy, speaks French, but, like, wrong. Right, yeah, like with that accent. Yeah, he says it with, like, a London accent, and he says the wrong French words, but he says it with utter confidence, like that. And so anytime that happened, like, I heard it come out of the mouth of Del Boy Trotter. So I like, I mean, what, what year was this book published? 1989. 1989? That's the year that Taylor Swift came out. <laughs> Taylor Swift as a person came out in 1989, because that's when she was born. Yeah, okay, so I will put that down. All the Fools and Horses, is that what you said the title was? Yeah, it's really, really good. A good comedy, but also like surprisingly heartfelt. I don't know. I don't. I don't really know where the phrase came from, like how they invented it. But in the theme song, uh, it's like, "Why do only fools and horses work?" 
I like it. Yeah, no, I will I will watch that. Maybe that'll give me more references for future watch books too, if they kind of stick to those those reference. This is a good place to talk about because we're talking about the textual, like the framework of the story. The motto of this no, not the city, but the watch. Yeah. Fabricati DM Punk. It's a dirty Harry reference. Yeah. Which there's another Dirty Harry reference when Vimes. No, well, yes, but also when Vimes, when the mob comes to kill Sybil Rampkin's dragons, Vimes picks up a dragon and says, Do you feel lucky? So there's that Dirty Harry reference as well. Yeah, and Colin does the, you know, in all the excitement, you don't know how many shots have been fired. Although, like, I mean, quite clearly it's, you know. Unless you're Legolas, it's fairly easy to tell how many arrows have been <laughs> yes. fired. There's also a lot of Humphrey Bogart references, which there's at least two references to Casablanca in this book. There's the, of all the cities it could have flown into, it flew into mine. There's also the yes. one at the end where Vimes and Sybil are kind of getting together and he says, here's looking at you, kid. The fact that his name is Sam Vimes is supposed to be a reference to the character Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon, which Humphrey Bogart famously played. I mean, Humphrey Bogart is like, if you're going to think about a noir detective, that he's like the er-noir detective. Like he played, he became famous for playing detectives in noir films. So all those references to Humphrey Bogart is supposed to kind of solidify Sam Vimes as a Humphrey Bogart grizzled alcoholic noir character. What would you what would what would you do if I told you there was an IRA reference in this text? Is there really? Yes. Where? Okay. This is another thing where it benefits being this side of the pond. And this is how I'm gonna tie it back into the Brian Blessed thing. So okay, so we've established that Brian Blessed first of all did flash Gordon and he said Gordon's alive, okay? Now, you remember the bit in the text where they were talking, I can't, are they talking about veterinary or one of the, like, rulers where they said, oh, you have to be lucky every day, we only have to be lucky just once. That's a legitimate thing that the IRA said to Margaret Thatcher, that she needed to be lucky every day, and they only needed to be lucky once to kill her. And to tie it back into Brian Blessed, Brian Blessed was hosting an episode of the British News panel show have i got a bit more news for you uh around the time that margaret thatcher died and she's he said like you know in saddening news but i think she's a baroness or something or dame whatever the fuck i don't like her she's a horrible person she's dead good but margaret thatcher is dead and now for this also to work you need to know that we also had a the uk also had a pm called gordon brown and he said, Margaret Thatcher is dead, but all you need to know is Gordon's alive. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I am like, my mind is being blown right now with the amount of references I did not get in this book. And I love this book. I think it's a great novel. Yeah, I gave this book five stars and Goodreads. Yeah, there's also a Sherlock reference. Once you've ruled out the impossible then whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. The problem lay in working out what was impossible, of course. That was the trick, all right. That is like a play on that first sentence, which is straight out of Sherlock Holmes. There's also a reference right after it that I did not completely get, so this is where either you or our listeners could probably help me. There was also the curious incident of the orangutan in the nighttime. There's a book by Mark. 
I've read that book. It's a terrible portrayal of autism. That came out way later. So that's why I'm confused about what this is a reference to. There's a book by F. Scott Fitzgerald that's like a curious incident in the nighttime, but it doesn't seem to have any noir connections. There's also the curious case of Benjamin Button. I don't know. Like, I, this is one I didn't completely get. Is this, so I'm reading off of this, is this A, a commonly used phrase I was heretofore unaware of, B, an obscure nod by Haddon to Mr. Pratchett, C, a coincidence, D, none of the above. Let's see whether there's any replies. They're both referring to a Sherlock Holmes story. It's a reference to Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock oh. Holmes. Uh, I don't remember exactly which, but Mr. Holmes upbraids Watson for overlooking the significance of the curious incident of the dog oh, in the okay. nighttime. It's from the... Oh, here we go. It's from Silver Blaze and the sounding board wasn't Watson, but another character. Case closed. It was another Sherlock Holmes reference. I love as well, we're nearly half an hour into recording this and we haven't even touched upon the Lord of the Rings references. There's quite a few of those as well with all of the, well, it's the Hobbit, right? It's the hoarding and Smaug and... The whole thing about how, oh, there can't be heroes handing down a sword and birthmark is very much Aragorn hiding out with the Dúnedain yes. until he can reclaim the throne of Gondor. Because they literally make a remark about, oh, how the, like, the steward or whatever is going to step aside, which, you know, Denethor famously does not do. Which Vetinari famously does not do either. That's... A good point. Oh my god. I take back every negative thing I said about Lord Veterinary because he is easily the most interesting character in this whole book. I love him so much. Like, every single interaction he's in, you know, like where he's like, he just walks away to the dungeon and then he's like, you know, they hear the calamity of the the dragon upstairs and you get like the tiny little paragraph where it goes back to him. And he said, you know, it says, like, Lord Venonary just smiled, you know, and then, of course, the revelation where he's built the dungeon, you know, he's built a dungeon where he can escape from if he wants, and he's got the key and all this. Oh, my God. I love this man so much. There's a segment and he's being waited on on rats because he got bored and, like, solved the 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 war between the rats and the scorpions and the snakes in the dungeons. <laughs> but there's a great segment it's on page 279 in my book where vimes this is when vimes is in the dungeon with the patrician and he just realized the thing about the lock being on the outside but the bolts and bars are on the inside and he says he wondered what it was like in the patrician's mind all cold and shiny he thought all blued steel and icicles and little wheels clicking along like a huge clock the kind of mind that would carefully consider its own downfall and turn it to its advantage it's a great characterization. And he's just sitting there reading the the history of lace making because that's what the rats brought him to read. But, you know, he wasn't going to turn up his nose at new reading material. I suppose this is the point where we should also address the fact that Lupine Wands, who has a name that sounds like it came out of Skullduggery Pleasant, is actually the Supreme Grandmaster in a turn which seems very Skullduggery Pleasant. So I'm really leaning into that it was inspired heavily by Discworld. But he's the villain. And where where Vimes confronts him, and you know where he like, did any of them get out? Did you realize? I, I I have to ask. When did you realize that it was him? I did not. I didn't at all, and I really like. I don't think I was aware of it because Discworld so far has just been like, oh, there's so many characters in robes that we shouldn't like connect it. Um. 
But then also, like, I picked up on that the narrative was, like, trying to make it out that, it like, the Supreme Grandmaster was veterinary. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that would make sense with the whole, like, thing he says at the start with, like, you know, oh, the king would be, would need someone to advise him, you know, someone to, like, whisper in his ear. Then I was like, well, it can't really be veterinary after everything we've seen because, like, he's even even when there was the whole paragraph about the dragon speaking into Wance's mind, I was just like, okay, yeah, he's just unfortunately happened to be here. I, I never picked up on it because I, I wasn't expecting a twist villain because, like I say, it could literally just be one of Discworld's many millions of... What's the word where you refer to someone as, like, the whatever? You just refer to them by, like, a title? Oh, like one of their many, like, I mean, because you have priests, you have wizards in the Discworld, you have lots of, like, robed, titled people. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, oh, that's their name. That's like, oh, the Supreme Grandmaster. It's just the Supreme Grandmaster, you know, of this brotherhood. What did you think about the Supreme Grandmaster and the Secret Society, which... I laughed so hard at the beginning where he goes to like the wrong place. Like the whole joke about the many secret societies who meet on this street and they all kind of have a similar, like it takes him like three secret phrases before they realize that he's at the wrong house. Like that was, that was all a really great bit. The, what did you think about this group of men who are, part of the secret society who are being manipulated by wants the supreme grandmaster into summoning this dragon because i definitely had a different take this time around than i did the first time i read it so i'm curious to know what you thought i was like oh another secret cabal of men trying to summon some world-ending threat it's a bit done to death but then again like i'm coming to this later than other works which were built in the mold of Pratchett. So it's a bit weird that I'm coming at this in the reverse. I really enjoyed Brother Dunnikin literally just like complaining in the background where you just have sentences and then you have like, you know, a hyphen and things in italics and you're like, oh, there's Dunnikin still complaining about the $3 he spent on an amulet. I don't know. I really enjoyed the subtext of how, like, you know, before it's revealed the Supreme Grandmaster's narration where it's like it's easier and easier to tap into their fervor. And uh, it's it really li- links into what I w- what we were talking about in the um, Light Fantastic episode about the death of the mind, where, where that was like when you're on the ground and facing one-minded mob. Uh, but this is like from the perspective of you know like a charismatic cult leader, your your I don't know your Jim Jones, your Charles Manson, things like that, where it's like these people are fully invested in the words they've sold, you know, and they'll do anything, where it's like, there's a bit later on, I can't remember what exactly the quote is or what page it's on, but it's around the time when the Supreme Grandmaster is gone and Brother Doorkeeper is filling in, and it's like, you know, you just have to give them something and you tell them that, and then you keep promising them further and further stuff on this path to, like, enlightenment or the truth. And uh, then, you know, you congratulate them and say, like, they're part of the way there and things like that. You know, how easy it is to dupe people. And I think it's really contrasted with this 
very small scale in the grand scheme of things play when you compare it to Vedanari, who's literally like, you read the paragraph about his mind, and he's actually like, you know, they say he's involved in most of all of the plots against him. He started them, for the most part. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, he's got something to do, or he needs something to do. So I think it's an interesting dichotomy. There's a whole quote where it's like, Lord Vendinari doesn't agree with the word tyrant, and I can't remember the reason. But yeah, like the way Vendinari actually goes around, like manipulating and threatening people. Yeah, and then a little while later, the patrician summoned the leading thieves again and said, Oh, by the way, there was something else. What was it now? Oh, yes. I know who you are, he said. I know where you live. I know what kind of horse you ride. I know where your wife has her hair done. I know where your uh, I know where your lovely children. How old are they now? My, doesn't time fly? I know where they play. So you won't forget about what we agreed, will you? And he smiled. So did they, after a fashion. That's very much like what the the elucidated Brotherhood of Ebon Knight is playing at. There was a lot in the descriptions, especially the way that the Supreme Grandmaster wants talks about the others that really reminded me of some of the darker parts of Reddit. So like, for an example, there's a part at the beginning where he says, what a shower, he told himself, a bunch of incompetence no other secret society would touch with a 10-foot scepter of authority, the sort to dislocate their fingers with even the simplest secret handshake, but incompetence with possibilities, nevertheless. Let other societies take the skilled, the hopefuls, the ambitious, the co- self-confident, he'd take the whining, resentful ones, the ones with a belly full of spite and bile, the ones who knew they could make it big if only they'd been given the chance. Give him the ones in which the flood of venom and vindictiveness were dammed up bet- behind thin walls of ineptitude and low-grade paranoia. And then like later, when he like indicates to them that maybe they're being oppressed, and they talk about all the things that oppressed them, and they, they talk about, like, oh, like, my boss oppresses me. The woman in the vegetable shop oppresses me. My landlord oppresses me. Like, this all really reminded me of the way in which, in like, what we would think of now as incels would talk, right? Like, this idea of, like, oh, well, I'm being oppressed by all of these other people. Like, women won't have sex with me. And so, like, they're evil. You know, like, that kind of paranoia and, like, just resentment. Like, these, like, it's very funny. We Well, we saw it with, like, frightening effect with the way people banded together through, you know, anonymous online chat rooms to do things like storm the U.S. Capitol. That's what it reminds me more of, where, you know, you get all these people and you stoke the fire and you go, look how badly you've been treated under this. Don't take this as I'm comparing veterinary to Biden because I, th- I prefer right. veterinary. I think veterinary... <laughs> Veninari is not a war criminal by choice. I'm sorry. Um, can I briefly just say a thing about the presence of the United States? Of course. You're not going to get mad at me, are you? No. Okay. Every single president of the United States of America is a war criminal. Bar yes. William Henry Harrison, who died too early into office to be a war criminal. Pretty sure he was before he became president, but let me double check that. Yeah, yeah, he definitely was. He definitely waged some military actions against indigenous peoples, which makes him a war criminal. 
finally, I don't have to add that generalization. I can just say all of the presidents of the United States are war criminals, and I don't need to feel inaccurate. Yes. No, you're you're absolutely correct. I don't know why you thought I was going to be offended by that. I'm very aware of our leadership history. We've literally been, we were literally talking about people who stormed the U.S. Capitol. And so, you know, like saying that the president has done bad things, you know, might set them off if it's a president that they support. I don't know. Like politics plays a really big part in the City Watch. And I really enjoyed that. I don't know. I'm struggling to see or I'm struggling to figure out whether this is like, a book which is critical of class systems or whether it like endorses them yeah because there's a part that speaks to both and it's also like it certainly leans more towards class criticism as the book goes on but definitely a start at the start there's passages where it seems like it's like oh basically this caste system is a good thing i don't know I like I'd like to see how this progresses in future watch books. Because this book had an awful lot of talk about money, but it didn't have the quote about boots, which you mentioned. Yeah, we haven't before. gotten to the boots yet. Yeah, although the whole like one of the things that really sold me on Sam is a bit later on where they're like, you know, he only gets this much and he has this much also that he could claim for fly or for plume allowance and he never takes it like he won't take money to sell out to this, like, you know. No, because this book is, like, not propaganda. No, the it fact, is not. Despite the fact that it's like, we need to restore this police force to what Carrot thinks it should be. It's not propaganda. It doesn't read that way, which I think is really, really refreshing. Because, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, while funny, is propaganda. So uh, when I was rereading this, because, you know, you always worry when you go back to reread things that you liked when you were a teenager, you worry that when you go back to it, that there's going to be content in it that is not what you remember it being. And I'm sure there will be. I am sure that we will get to stuff in Terry Pratchett that I'm like, oh, that's problematic. But I was really worried when Vimes first brought up the plume thing that that was going to turn into a really homophobic joke. Like, it was going to be like, oh, well, like, only women wear plumes or, like, something like that. But it's not. Like, he actually explains that the reason he hates plumes is because, one, if you're wearing a plume, it's really obvious that you don't belong to yourself, that someone else is telling you how to dress. And number two, it makes you look like a bird. (laughs) Which just seemed like the, like, it seemed like the weirdest reason to object to a uniform to just be like, I don't want to look like a bird. It was just very funny to me. But also relieving. Yeah. They have this whole thing where they're like, they have to go incognito, you know, and they have like (laughs) Nobby dressed like that and dancing about the street. Well, at least it would make, it wouldn't make people think that this is a member of the city watch attempting to go undercover. Yeah, he says, he says, under, he says, uh, go undercover, or in Nobby's case, overcover. Yeah, I love Nob. Like, I think Sam and uh, Lord Veterinary are my favorite characters in this book. But also, like, third after that is the librarian. But then fourth after that is Nobby. I really enjoyed Nobby so much. Like, hold on, there's a bit, there's a bit later on where they're talking about, like, they're talking about the pay. 
<laughs> and he's like, Renobi's like, Captain Vimes docked me $10 for being a disgrace to the human species. <laughs> yeah, he gets, he like panics because Colin is like, you get responsibility paid too. He's like, no, I don't. He docked it because I'm a disgrace to the species. Yeah, I, oh, I, gosh. I haven't figured out while reading the story. Like, I haven't, fi- like, what is wrong with Nobby? He's like, it's so funny because they can't decide if he's actually human or not. Yeah, because it's like, things in the animal kingdom would hesitate even to associate themselves with something that looked like Nobby, they say, near the start. Right, and he like spe- he's very short, he speaks out of the corner of his mouth and has like a permanent dog ear. <laughs> it's, it's just like really funny. And he's very unethical, like he's he's constantly like pilfering things. There's a scene after the fight in the mended drum, he when they're like wondering what to do with all of the other combatants, he says, Well, we could slit their throats. Like he's clearly like a veteran of like a a very unethical sort of battlefield. So, like, it's very, it, he's, like, stealing boots all the time off of people who are dead or knocked out. Like, he's, he's very opportunistic. He's very opportunistic, but some of the parts, like, I read him as being someone afflicted by PTSD. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Where it's, like, I think everyone in the watch bar Karish, because he's the fresh-faced recruit who, I suppose, like, the disease or disorder that's afflicting him is optimism in this case. And literalism. Yeah, like uh, charge them, throw the book at them. I laughed so hard when Vimes told him to warn him next time before he does the, the dwarf war chant, preferably in writing. I actually had to stop because I was laughing. No, it's not a dwarf war chant, it's dwarf war yodel. Sorry, dwarf war yodel. But yeah, next time, warn me, preferably in writing. (laughs) Yeah, I think that all of the, you know, the watch, they're they're sort of like playing off of the things that being in the service and having to do unsavory things do. I know that's also like a played out trope now, but you know, like... Vimes is brought low by a woman, which is the city, to drink, you know, and he needs to be an alcoholic because that's what the plot requires. He's also extremely depressed. Like, even Colin says, like, he's born, like, he wakes up two two drinks more sober than most people, which is why he has to drink, according to Colin. So he he's very cynical and very depressed because he thinks the world should be better than it is. Which Vetinari calls him out on later too. Yeah, and then you have, then you have Nobby, which he, you know, like I read him as in part suffering from PTSD, and then like you know opportunistic. You know, he definitely feels like the type of person who survived at the edges of a battlefield, and is you know like he's one of the few people left on a field of corpses or something. This could be entirely like baseless, you know, and then of course. Colin has trouble at home where, you know, he's out constantly and because of governmental underfunding, he's not bringing home enough to support his family. And so while it does seem a bit sexist when Colin tells it, you know, oh, his wife is leaving passive-aggressive notes for him, you know, when you stop and think about it, like, 
it's not really anyone's fault. He's working a job which requires him to go out when other people are going to bed, like they say. And, you know, he doesn't do anything. He just walks around the street with a bell and says, you know, all's well, 12 o'clock, all's well, and gets paid fuck all for it. Like, of course, it's going to destroy any interpersonal relationships he has. Yeah, I actually wrote, so Lauren Berlant, who is a very famous, or she was a very famous gender studies theorist, she talked about the idea of cruel optimism, which is when, and she says it specifically happens under capitalism, where the thing that you want actually causes you to become worse mentally and fit like it it advert like you have optimism and you want a something but it actually causes you detrimental harm so the idea is is that like wanting a house under capitalism could it's not a bad thing to want a house but the pursuit of it could actively cause you harm because capitalism isn't set up to actually there's no ethical consumption under capitalism and i think that's what cut me out and throat like exemplify cut me on throat dibbler we finally got him this is a reoccurring character alert i'm so glad i'm i loved him so much i think he comes after nobby in my favorite characters in this book because it's so fun like you see his type everywhere in fiction where it's like selling the you know the gigaws and whatever where it's like oh this will protect you from x spiritual threat i promise you know it's I definitely didn't make this myself. And I love the fact that at the end, they devote a little paragraph to the monks sending off the stuff to Mr. <laughs> Dibbler. You know, where it's like, oh, it is legit. Yeah, I wonder what he does with all this stuff. Yeah, but it's also like, Terry Pratchett really loves the name Lobsang because it's in Discworld an awful lot. And then also the AI which goes around with Joshua in the Long Earth series is called Lobsang. Yeah, this is definitely not the last time we'll see that name either. So, yeah, I think you're right. Lobsang is a reoccurring name, if not a reoccurring character. Lobsang is like a traditional like Buddhist monk name, from what I'm aware. I, I don't know, Nepalese or Bhutanese, I'm not sure which, like, in our... I could be completely wrong in that, but yeah. Like, I've definitely seen real-world reporting on people who are called Lobsang. So, like, it's a real name. Uh, to go back to what you said earlier about all the Watch, the members of the Watch having some sort of, like, PTSD or, like, some sort of issue, there's a really great paragraph in which Vimes... Because Vimes has the greatest introspections, which is very noir, but it's also very Pratchett. Like, he always... He's very depressed, and he's... His problem is is that he doesn't want to be cynical, but life has sort of forced him to be cynical, and that causes this like cognitive dissonance that Bedstari talks about later. He says when he's talking about this is when Lady Rampkin introduces him to the dragon that they'll later name Errol, and tells him that he's like a total whittle. Total whittle, Vimes thought. He wasn't sure of the precise meaning of the word, but he could hazard a shrewd guess. It sounded like whatever it was you had left when you had extracted everything of any value whatsoever. Like the watch, he thought. Total whittles, every one of them. And just like him, it was the saga of his life. That, to me, is a really good explanation of the ways in which the watch represents a group of people who have really suffered 
under the system that Vetinari has set up, which works for the rest of the city, but doesn't work for them. Yeah. I suppose it goes back to, like, what you expect from things like the Lord of the Rings, where, you know, Aragorn tells the hobbits, you know, like, he's the king of the greatest nation on Earth, and he tells them that he he must bow to them, that uh, they must bow to no man for their contributions to saving the world. Whereas the Watch, after saving Ankh Morpork from, you know, this vicious dragon, you know, their entire concern is, like, quality of life improvements where they want a pay raise to have a livable wage and then also maybe a dartboard and a kettle <laughs> yes and a kettle because errol ate the kettle errol is a great character i think errol is like the dog that you don't want but somehow like adopts you i like i really I really like the morality of where they put the dragon. Like, they use the dragon for an awful lot of morality, where Cratchit does this really interesting thing where he just doesn't describe the dragon doing anything. He just sort of cuts, and then it's like, oh, wow, you know, like, the dragon did X, Y, or Z, you know? But, the, like, he uses it to, uh, like, really good effect, like, with the people in the shade, the six people who get turned into this ghastly tree. And, you know, Sam is like, well, no one should ever have to suffer such a fate. But then also, like, one of the lines which really, like, just stood out to me, was, I think it's when the Brotherhood's house is destroyed. You know, like, oh, it could have been worse. And then Vime says, yeah, it could have been us. He's kind of got a bit of Rincewind in him, too. Like, not he's not as cowardly as Rincewind because he has more of, like, a moral center as much as he doesn't want to but he definitely has a i don't want to be main character but i keep but i some but somebody has to be and so it might as well be me he needs to get over the fact that shit things have happened to him and that doesn't define him you know like oh what's worse than other people dying well i guess you could die and like you know on the one hand you can read that as like really really depressed but then also like if you want to lean into the heroic stuff like you know, the worst thing that could have happened is the few people in the city who believe that the dragon is not dead could have been killed. So I guess you can have an optimistic reading of it if you want. Vetinari and Vimes' relationship is so interesting because Vimes doesn't like Vetinari, but he admits that Vetinari is better than perhaps the alternative because Vimes is very anti-monarchy, right? He doesn't want there to be a king. Yeah, okay, so this is a longer section, but it's at the very end. It's after the dragon has been defeated and once has been killed, and he... Here it is. The patrician steepled his hands and looked at Vimes over the top of them. Let me give you some advice, Captain, he said. Yes, sir. It may help you make some sense of the world. Sir, I believe you find life such a problem because you think that there are good people and the bad people, said the man. You are wrong, of course. There are always and only the bad people, but some of them are on opposite sides. He waved his thin hand towards the city and walked over to the window. A great rolling sea of evil, he said, almost proprietorially. Shallower in some places, of course, but deeper, oh, so much deeper in others. But people like you put together little rafts of rules and vaguely good intentions and say, this is the opposite. This will triumph in the end. Amazing. He slapped Vimes good-naturedly on the back. Down there, he said, are people who will follow any dragon, worship any god, ignore any iniquity, 
all out of a kind of humdrum, everyday badness. Not the really high creative loathsomeness of the great sinners, but a sort of mass-produced darkness of the soul. Sin, you might say, without a trace of originality. They accept evil not because they say yes, but because they don't say no. I'm sorry if this offends you, he added, patting the captain's shoulder, but you fellows really need us. Oh yes, sir, said Vimes quietly. Oh yes, we're the only ones who know how to make things work. You see, the only thing the good people are good at is overthrowing the bad people. And you're good at that, I'll grant you. But the trouble is it's the only thing you're good at. One day it's the ringing of the bells and the casting down of the evil tyrant. And the next day it's everyone sitting around complaining that ever since the tyrant was overthrown, no one's been taking out the trash. Because the bad people know how to plan. It's part of the specification, you might say. Every evil tyrant has a plan to rule the world. The good people don't seem to have the knack. And then later, actually skipping down a little bit, he says, of course, of course, he says, you have to believe that. I appreciate. Otherwise, you'd go quite mad. Otherwise, you'd think you're standing on a feather-thin bridge over the vaults of hell. Otherwise, existence would be a dark agony, and the only hope would be that there is no life after death. I understand. And so, like, it's this idea that Vetinari thinks that Vimes worldview is what like his optimism is actually causing him to be depressed because he knows it's not true like in a contender for the thing that made me think in this episode right i and i'm excited for you because this is really like i said the beginning of an arc so there there's a lot of stuff to come but a few things before we before we start moving towards the end of the episode we haven't talked well, first of all, let's talk about the place that we're in. So most of the books we've been in so far have sort of traveled around a bit, or they've been in Lanker, or they've been in Death's House, in the case of Mort, with just very quick trips to Ankh-Morpork. But this book mostly takes place in Ankh-Morpork. The only time that we are outside of Ankh-Morpork is when we see Kara at the beginning in his home in the mountains of Lanker. Which, did you catch that? Did you catch Magrat Garlic yeah. reference? Yeah, yeah, they talk to Mr. Garlic down the road. Yeah. yeah, and so he travels from Lanker to Ankh-Morpork, but really, I mean, and this is definitely said overly often, especially about noir genre, Ankh-Morpork is a character in this book. So what did you think about the portrayal of Ankh-Morpork here? Did it add anything to your understanding of this place? Um, I can tell you one thing about Ankh-Morpork. There's no rocks there. It's built on loam. It's built on loam. <laughs> Ankh-Morpork is mainly built on Ankh-Morpork. I don't know. Like, it talks about places like the Shades and stuff, and it definitely feels like, to me, this is meant to be important, but I don't know how. And again, like, maybe that's because so many of the books we've read before spend a lot of their time jumping around. So, like, obviously, everything to do with like, the Unseen University, that feels like a real place because of the way it's described and we've seen it in previous books. From, like, that little bit of more to bits in the color of magic and then into the light fantastic. You know, you, you see references to it in Weird Sisters. That feels real. By and large, it was just like, oh, here's this kind of, like, gloomy, stodgy, very smelly city. I, I don't think I have as much, like, I certainly enjoy it, but I don't know what my opinion is on Ankh-Morpork being a character in this way. 
Fair enough. I mean, we do get a few mentions of the places that are important to later books. We get the palace, right, which we've seen before. We get Pseudopolis Yard, which is the place that by the end of the book, they just start calling it the yard, which is the place that they move to after the watch, the old watch house burns down. And it's in like a more posh. You know what else is referred to as the yard? Scotland Yard. And it's like in a more posh neighborhood than the watch. So so it like offends all the people around them that they've moved in. We get the shades, like you said, which is like the worst part of the city. And we get the mended drum, which of course we've seen before in other in other books as well. I also really appreciated that we get a reference to the Ankh Morpork River, the Ankh, which is they use it to put out some of the fires, but they because the Ankh is so polluted, it's like they're using nets to like pull it up. It's like sludge almost. I love the bit where it's like they have a bucket chain going, but because there's so many going, the books are just getting nicked. <laughs> yeah, that's Ankh Morpork for you. Like, it's a very, it's a very seedy place. Like, it's supposed to be this city where anything could happen, and there's a lot of magic. But there's also like the cut me own throat dibblers. There's the heroes, but there's also the thieves. Like, it's it's kind of this place that has a lot of potential, like you said. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well where it's like, well, there is no such thing as a hero who would come along. And it's like, obviously, Carrot is kind of like that analog because he does have the sword and veterinary even kind of like hints at this at the end. But it's like the watch very much are like, you know, they're coming back from the wilderness of this society with all the guilds, which has kind of like obviated the need for the watch like they're coming out of that wilderness and making a return when the city needs some actual like enforcement of the law and let's talk about carrot because we haven't talked about him very much so far so carrot sort of plays the role of the young you know recruit and so we get a lot of things that are introduced because he they're being introduced to him right for the first time and he comes from a dwarf mine. He was adopted by dwarves, which again is very suspicious, right? Like he was a child wandering around in the wilderness and all that he had was this sword, you know, and and they adopt him and raise him. And in fact, he thinks he's a dwarf until he's 16, right? Even though he's like six foot tall and like has muscles for days. Like I definitely think of him as having like what we would classically think of as a Marvel hero physique. I, I love the, the bit where he attempts to arrest everyone in the mended drum. And then they're like, oh, well, yeah. he's dead. And they're like, you know, they see people come stumbling out and even detritus, like, gets smashed through the door. And they're like, you don't suppose he's winning, do you? What do you think about him as a character? Because, yeah, he has this, like, he considers himself a dwarf, even though he's biologically human. He has a very dwarvish way of thinking, which is very literal, right? Like they, he's given a book of all, like very outdated laws at the beginning, and he takes his job very seriously. And when he moves to the city, he even tries to disrupt this guild system that Betanari has worked so hard to, to make reality by arresting the head of the Thieves Guild, by trying to arrest people that shouldn't be arrested, Again, this is a thing you see all the time, like this fresh-faced new recruit who has all these big ideals about saving the world. And in this case, like he very much does help save the world, or at least Ankh Morpork 
I don't know, by and large, it was just like, eh, okay, I guess. I I enjoyed the other members of the watch far more than I did Karis. Like, I thought it was humorous, him doing the dwarf war yodel and charging the people with axes and certainly, like, throwing the book at once and, like, knocking him down onto the floor and killing him. But also, it was just like, I don't know, he's the least interesting character there, I think, for me. He arrests the dragon. I thought that was really, like, I did enjoy that part as well, where he's like, he takes advantage of the fact that they're told that you can't harm prisoners, and so this is how they acquiesce to Lady Sybil's not wanting the dragon to get hurt. You know, that like, if you hurt the prisoner, then you're going to get arrested too. I thought that was quite a, a clever workaround, because, like, Pratchett isn't known for excessive bloodshed. Like, it's not Grimdark, it's not George R. R. Martin. So, you know, like, having someone come along and, like, behead the dragon would have been a bit much. Yeah, I think, too, I think that it's interesting to see the play between Vimes as a character and Carrot, although they don't get a lot of time to interact with each other very often. We still get this idea that Carrot might actually be pulling Vimes back a little bit, like, just by existing, just by being this person that actually believes that the law should be enforced and that we shouldn't do things like harm prisoners and we shouldn't you know we we shouldn't just allow people to do crimes and we should actually try to save people we shouldn't you know run slowly so we don't actually catch the person i i get the impression that this is part of what causes vimes to slowly start to actually care again like it sort of rubs off on vimes a little bit or reminds him maybe of someone he used to be Again, it's to be expected, like, that kind of optimism is contagious. Because, like, that's what you see in fiction, but also, like, Vime's optimism is what's making him depressed, if you believe Lord Vetinari. So the fact that, like, there's another optimist on the force now might, like, <laughs> convince... Because, like, that's what you get into at the end of the novel. And the whole thing, like, they basically have to sell this lie where... They walk like their whole job is selling a lie, walking around and ringing a bell and saying that all is well when, like, really it's not. Yeah, and that lie is depressing to Vibes at the beginning, but I think by the end we start to see the glimmer of the idea that he can actually have this cognitive dissonance and still be f a functional person. Yeah, because at the beginning he can't have the cognitive dissonance, he can't say all is well and live in the reality of the city, right? This is what causes him to drink and be in the gutter and, you know, be at the mended drum. But by the end, we start to see that maybe he's working out a way where both things can exist in his mind at the same time. Yeah, he's definitely like the, other, like the second, the latter half of that Oscar Wilde quote from Lady Windermere's farm. All of us are, like, all of us are living in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. I feel like I've remembered that one incorrectly, but, you know, that's the gist of it. So, a couple of other things. Let's, we haven't talked about Lady Rampkin yet. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up her because I have a delightful voice in my head. Oh, her. yes, yes. I want to hear it. Do you have a good quote that exemplifies her? I will. I will read the description of her, although there's not a line here. So, I love this description of her when she's introduced. Even shorn of her layers of protective clothing, Lady Sybil Rampkin was still toweringly big. 
Vimes knew that the barbarian Hublander folk had legends about great chain-mailed, armor-broad, cart-horse-riding maidens who swooped down on battlefields and carried off dead warriors on their cropper to a glorious, roistering afterlife while singing in a pleasing mezzo-soprano. Lady Rampkin could have been one of them. She could have led them. She would have carried off a, a battalion. When she spoke, every word was like a hearty slap on the back and clanked with the aristocratic self-assurance of the totally well-bred. The vowel sounds alone would have cut teak. Oh, I have one. So I, I feel like she speaks like Julia Childs. Oh, it sounds nice, she said. I'll grant you. Then they realize it means soot burns, frizzled hair, and crap all down their back. Those talons dig in, too. And then they think the thing's getting too big and smelly, and the next thing you know, it's either down to the Moorport Sunshine Sanctuary for Lost Dragons or the old heave-ho in the river with a rope around your neck. Poor little buggers. She sat down, arranging a skirt that could have made sails for a small fleet. Now then, Captain Vimes, was it? That's great. I love that. That... Uh, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking Gwendolyn Christie speaking with the voice of Julia Childs. Also, like, that's a weird thing that I was, like, also unsure about this book. Like, it feels vaguely fatphobic in the way that, like, a lot of the characters speak about Lady Sybil. But she doesn't, but she doesn't feel that way. Like, especially Cola. Yes. Yeah, she, she doesn't, but the way that, like, some of the, the characters talk about her, it's like, oh, you know, this is like, ooh. Yeah, well, but it's interesting that Colin brings that up at the beginning, but by the end of the book, both he and Nobby seem willing to do anything for her. Yeah, she has the air of someone who, when she speaks, she's used to getting what she wants, but not in, like, uh, the patrician way. It's just like, you know, she's from high stock. But yeah, certain parts of it definitely did feel like they were making an awful lot of jokes at the expense of her physique and her weight. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. No, I, I definitely felt that way at parts too. Although it never feels like, I don't know, it's hard to tell because almost all of those observations are from other characters. Yeah, and it's not the narrative itself, really. Well... Right, and she and Vimes don't seem to feel that way at all. Like, Vimes observes that she's big at the beginning, I mean, in that section that I just read you, but he seems very attracted to it almost instantly. He even says, you know, that, like, you know, there are certain societies that have carved amazingly lifelike images of her as goddesses. Yeah. Which read as attraction to me. What do you think about their relationship? Couldn't care less. Yeah, not interested. I'm not interested in most romance things in in books. So, fair enough. I thought it was kind of charming. Like I I feel like I was more invested in it this time around than I was the first time I read this, although that could also be just knowledge of things that happen. I also just really liked the idea that she was kind of the initiator of the romance, like even though he was clearly like very attracted to her from the beginning, like the idea that she was just like, yeah, like I like him. And like, she's very free about the fact that she likes him. And like, she initiates the romance at the dinner at the end. Like to me, that just read very nice, I guess, because I feel like someone like Vibes kind of needs someone to spell it out for him. Like we're going to be in a relationship now. <laughs> like, like the, he just, he doesn't seem like he completely 
believes it when people like him or understands it even. He seems kind of embarrassed by it a little bit. And so it's just, it, it was just kind of nice to have that moment at the end where he says, like, he couldn't do better, but she couldn't do worse. So maybe it would all work out in the end. Like, and the, the idea that their relationship is clearly being compared to the relationship between Errol and the dragon, who we find out is female at the end, and they sort of fly off together. But it's also like an interesting parallel to, I think, a theme throughout this novel, like especially with the patrician where it's like, you're not going to have something that's wholly good. You're also not going to have something that's bad, you know, like ultimately bad. You're going to have something somewhere in between where eventually it'll work in a state of equilibrium. You know, not that you can fully say that like a relationship between two vastly different people is the better of both evils, but there's definitely that attempt at equanimity that like runs through every aspect of the novel. Vimes needs to surrender some of his surly cynicism and then Carrot needs to surrender some of his optimism to make this new watch going forward. So definitely all of the characters' relationships in the book are, you know, like this kind of quid pro quo scenario where you got to give something, get something, and somewhere in the middle, that's where you eventually end up. But I don't think, I mean, as cynical as Vimes is, I don't think, that sounds like very, like, perfunctory, I guess. And like, I agree with you. I think that they both have to kind of negotiate, all the relationships have to sort of be renegotiated. But it does actually seem kind of optimistic, like this idea that like you can make something out of it, mm. like you can, you can sort of figure out someplace in the middle. So there are many cameos, many, many, many cameos. One of the most important ones is, of course, the librarian who actually gets a storyline in this book. So the librarian usually only shows up in the Unseen University books as a main character, but here he gets his own storyline where he's even sworn into the watch because he he reports a missing book, which we haven't even talked about L-Space yet, which this is the book where L-Space is introduced. Do you want to explain what L-Space is, Nigel? Uh, basically, L-Space is how all of the, like, pokey bookshops in the world seem like you you know you could wander into one and wander out like in basically the identical shop but it's actually in like a completely other place that like they feel the same because they're all connected by this quantum construct of books being pressed in on one another in really close confines yeah so l space is an important part of this because the librarian actually has to do a little time travel in order to solve the mystery of who stole the summoning of dragons, which is the the book that the secret society uses to call the dragon. But yeah, he gets, he gets sworn into the watch. He has a relationship with Vimes and Carrot. He does briefly assault Colin after Colin calls him a monkey, which this is introduced in this book, this idea that the, the librarian actually seems to really enjoy being an orangutan. Like it seems to fit him. He sees his the world the world through those eyes as being something that he likes, but he does not want to be called a monkey. We said this before where it's like, you know, people have just stopped questioning. Yeah, so here it is. First of all, the snorting was coming from underneath it where a piece of tattered blanket barely covered what looked like a heap of sandbags but was in fact an adult male orangutan. It was the librarian. 
Not many people these days remarked upon the fact that he was an ape. The change had been brought about by a magical accident, always a possibility when so many powerful books are kept together, and he was considered uh, to have got off lightly. And then, like, near the very end, if I were you, said Vimes, I'd put that book somewhere very safe, and the book of the law with it. They're too bloody dangerous. Oof. Vimes stretched, and now, he said, let's go and have a drink. Oof. But just a small one. Oof. And you're paying. <coughs> Vimes stopped and stared <laughs> down at the big, mild face. Tell me, he said, I've always wanted to know. Is it better, being an ape? The librarian thought about it. Ooh, he said. Oh, really, said Vimes. Or we don't get a definitive answer. Whether it's better or worse. Yeah, I love the thing in this book, because I told you in The Light Fantastic that I always like it when you have a character that doesn't speak English, like, you know, like Groot from Marvel or like a droid from Star Wars, like, like R2-D2 droid, not one of the other droids. Or in this case, the librarian who just says ook or sometimes eek if it's really bad. And the characters automatically understand what the character is saying. I like that at the beginning of this book, they don't understand him, right? Like they make him do charades. Like they're they're trying to like figure out what exactly he's trying to report. But by the end of the book, all of them seem to actually have a pretty good idea of what he's saying, which I think is great. Like they slowly learn orangutan. Well, they slowly, like, learn empathy, where it's like, you know, this is an actual conscious human being, or, well, obviously an orangutan, but, like, you know, something with a conscious mind. And so we got to make the effort to communicate with it instead of just being like, haha, monkey. Yeah, yeah, and he hates the monkey thing, which is played for laughs i think a couple of times because colin accidentally says monkey even though he's trying not to and then there's another time where somebody calls him a good monkey that's when they're threatening the guards in the kitchen of the palace that obviously doesn't go over well but also the fact that they refer to it sometimes as the m word makes it seem like it's almost a slur that they shouldn't say that is very, very true. So you said the librarian was your second favorite character? Third favorite character? Yeah, third favorite character. It went Lord Veterinary, Sam, the librarian, Nobby, and then cut me on throat, Dibbler. All right, there's a couple of other cameos. So we get a interesting callback to In Sewer Ants, which is the insurance thing that was introduced by Two Flowers. It's really taken off. It is... Yeah, it's really taken off in Ankh-Morpork, Pork, but they've made it their own. So, like, the insurance thing slowly becomes, like, the guild insurance mm. that they try to sell you. And then there's also a reference. I want to read it, actually. Where Lady... Here it is. Lady Rampkin. Uh, when she's offering Vimes, a, like, a reference, like a job when he gets fired, she says... I've got a lot of friends, you know. If you need any help, you've only got to say. The Duke of Stohalit is looking for a guard captain, I'm sure. I'll write you a letter. You'll like them. They're a very nice young couple. Which is clearly a reference to Mort and Isabel. Yeah. So she knows Mort and Isabel, and she's willing to give Vimes a reference to become their guard captain. Except for, of course, Vimes stays in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. So I thought that was interesting. I I did not remember that that was in there. So that was like a really fun little. Yeah, well, you get an awful lot of like 
references to like places and stuff like there's references to Quirm, which is quite obviously like you know from the lore of the worm in the color ma- the color of magic things like that they bring up um clatch an awful lot which isn't like isn't isn't frun um from clatch correct me if i'm wrong but yeah clatch is supposed to be sort and clatch are both supposed to be kind of like middle eastern african countries which is interesting because vimes talks about that when they're when they there's like this moment where they actually sort of start to talk about racism which is unusual for pratchett but they start to talk about racism when some of the citizens of ankh morpork are talking about well it might be a good thing to have a dragon king and they actually start to say some pretty racist stuff about clatchians um including like you know the the stereotypical racist thing where you make fun of the way that people talk and their accent and you know i I never did like them Clatchians, said the woman firmly. The stuff they eat, it's disgusting. Disgusting. And gabbling away all the time in their heathen lingo. And Vimes, of course, hears this, and he's he's thinking, you know, because it's always Vimes' introspection. If there was anything that really depressed him more than his own cynicism, it was quite often that it still wasn't as cynical as real life. We've gotten along with the other guys for centuries, he thought. Getting along has been practically all our foreign policy. Now I think I just heard us declare war on an ancient civilization that we've always gotten along with, more or less, even if they do talk funny. After all, the world, what's worse, will probably win. So there, that is a interesting part of him talking about how we've just decided to go to war with them because they talk funny. But it's also a reference or it's a I'm thinking of the word harbinger, but that's not the literary term. It's a uh, it's. Oh God! What is it? It's a forerunner, a uh... symbolic of. It's when something is brought up before it actually happens, like in a book. But there's a book later that will specifically talk about the foreign relations between Ankh Morpork and I think it's Clatch and the ways in which wars happen over race. And so that we're gonna get into that later as well. Yeah, but it's also I think like the notion of getting along is kind of like integral to Ankh-Morpork where it's like, you know, they say at the end, Ankh-Morpork did what it always did. It threw open its gates to invaders and just assimilated them. You know, they don't have to fight. They just need to like get along and create this like hodgepodge of culture, you know? And obviously like as someone again, who's from this side of the pond, it's very much reads like how like racist kind of like Tory British people will speak about people from places like India, you know, where they talk about like Indian food mm-hmm. and it's like, Jesus, I wouldn't go abroad and eat that disgusting food because it's all hot and spicy and, blah, you know, like, oh, that's not real food. And then you look at like the food they eat and it's the most bland thing ever. You know, it's not yeah. really to do with food, but it definitely does speak like this. It's not as big as it used to be, but in the 80s, there was a British political party which was kind of built around racism towards Indian people and people of color like that. It was called the BNP, the British Nationalist Party. And I think Nobby at some point even says, like, we, we haven't met we haven't met an outside force yet that we couldn't bribe or what was it? Bribe or corrupt or bribe. Yeah. That we couldn't corrupt or bribe until the dragon, right? Because you can't corrupt or bribe the dragon. There are Three death sightings in this book. 
There's the first one. Um, it's on page 36 of my book, which is when the first the dragon kills its first victim and death shows up. It's it's Moody. What is his name? Moody Zebo Moody, thief, third class, who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he is burned to death by the dragon, and death shows up even for sometimes special occasions. On page 194 in my book, he shows up when the Brotherhood is also killed by the dragon in a very hilarious bit where they start to take roll and he's there. And so the only way you know that he's there is because of the caps. Yeah, so the circle of robed and cowled figures shuffled in grudging agreement. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, certainly. Okay, if you say so. Like, you just, like, you suddenly realize that they're about to die because you can see those small caps. Yeah, like, it, that is the whole, like, kind of sitcom, like, comedy film thing where you, like, do things and you, like, assume because it's in a list of other correct things that it's correct. And then you do the double take where you go, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course, because he's wearing a robe and cowl, they can't tell that it's actually death. And then he also shows up for... Lupine wants at the end who mistakes him for brother doorkeeper and he says is that you brother doorkeeper he ventured the figure reached out metaphorically it said yeah I really like that I, I thought I would get what was coming to me and then death just says congratulations yeah death death has his moments so those are so all three of those moments are revolve more around death collecting people than anything else but they're, they're three pretty solid little moments. The first footnote in the book comes on page two, which is the L-space part, where the, the sentence it belongs to is, It was said that you could wander for days among the distant shelves, that there were lost tribes of research students somewhere in there, that strange things lurked in forgotten alcoves and were preyed on by other things that were even stranger. Footnote. All of this was untrue. The truth is that even a big collections of Ordinary books distort space, as can be readily proved by anyone who has been around a really old-fashioned second-hand bookshop, one of those that look as though they were designed by M. Escher on a bad day, and has more staircases than stories, and those rows of shelves which end in little doors that are surely too small for a full-sized human to enter. The relevant equation is, knowledge equals power equals energy equals matter equals mass. A good bookshop is just a genteel black hole that knows how to read. Great footnote. Great introductory footnote, I think. What was your favorite footnote? I kind of like, I like. I mean, I liked an awful lot of them. I like the one where they're talking about dwarves, how, like, you know, gender isn't really important. But I think I'm going to go with this footnote uh, per se, said the, said the first speaker quickly, for proper religious reasons and using condemned criminals and so on. Footnote, a number of religions in Ankh-Morpork still practice human sacrifice except that they didn't really need to practice anymore because they had got so good at it. City law said that only condemned criminals should be used, but that was all right, because in most of the religions, refusing to volunteer for sacrifice was an offense punishable by death. <laughs> yes, I read that one to Sam last night. I think you just love people called Sam. I think that's true, actually. People called Sam. My favorite footnote was the one where the... It was where the librarian was going back in time, and he talks about how it's definitely breaking the library rules. The sentence is, besides, it was against library rules. Footnote. The three rules of the librarians of time and space are, number one, silence. 
Number two, books must be returned no later than the last date shown. And three, do not interfere with the nature of causality. Seems right. Yeah. Seems like three good rules for a library. Yeah. What was the thing that made you laugh out loud? Quite a lot. Like, we talked about Karish and his, like, literalism and stuff. I really liked an awful lot of the stuff with Errol just eating stuff. And, like, before we knew what it was, I really, I don't know why I found it really funny. The, like, you know, fake medieval writing that, like, Vimes does in his notebook. You know, item. What a happy chance it'd be for a lad that would be king a... That there was a dragon to slay her to prove uh, beyond doubt his bonny fittest. And I'm, I'm, I am, of course, reading this like it's Middle English. Item. The dragon was not a mechanical device, uh, yet a surely no wizard has the power to create a beastie of that mag, mag, magnet size. Item. Why uh, in the pincher could it not flame? Item. Where did it come from? Item. Where did it go? Uh? I love that he doesn't talk that way at all, but he writes that way. Oh, that's great. I think one of my favorite parts, this was a reference that we didn't talk about, but it's in the, it's the part where the patrician puts a $50,000 reward for the slaying of the dragon and the hunters are all complaining about how hard monster hunting is and how that's not really the right price for killing a monster yeah because he doesn't have a daughter yeah he doesn't have a daughter although Vime says he does have a little dog that he's very fond of and an aunt and an aunt in Sudopolis yes so but the part that made me really really laugh was Because I didn't get it the first time I read it, but I got it this time. Monsters are getting more uppity too, said another. I heard where this guy, he killed this monster in this lake, no problem. Stuck its arm off over the door. Poor encourage la ortas, said one of the listeners. Right, and you know what? It's mum come and complained. It's actual mum come right down to the hall next day and complained. Actually complained. That's the respect you get. That is a reference to Grendel's mother. And it's Beowulf. Yeah, I did not get it. It was funny the first time I read it when I was a teenager, but I hadn't read Beowulf yet. It was even funnier thinking about how that's their way of summarizing the conflict between Beowulf, Grendel, and then Grendel's mother. Its mom came down and complained the very next day. All right. What is the thing that made you think? Oh, quite easily. I think this vibes very well with my one from the last episode. It's with Wants and the Dragon. You have the effrontery to be squeamish, it thought at him. But we were dragons. We were supposed to be cruel, cunning, heartless, and terrible. But this much I can tell you, you ape. The great face pressed even closer so that Wants was staring into the pitiless depths of his eyes. We never burned and tortured and ripped one another apart and called it morality. First of all, like, what a quote that hits you like a one-two punch. Because then it makes you think of, like, everything that's been done in so-called, like, in the name of, like, God or a higher calling or blood. You know, like, the persecution of women as witches. I mean, not to bring up the Nazis, but, you know, Mm -hmm. they believe what they were doing was in the Reich. You know, quite obviously, I'm not saying that it was. Obviously, like, what they did was completely and utterly abhorrent, but, you know. 
those were their morals that they, you know, like they killed right. millions of people and called it morality. You know, like there's the Mark Twain quote where it's like, you know, the tiger has no concept of evil because it does what it does to survive. Humans are the only evil animal because they're the only ones with a concept of right or wrong. Right, yeah, and the idea, I, I think that's a huge thing in Terry Pratchett, too, is that if you're going to be a monster, at least be honest about it. Like, this idea of, like, yeah, the dragon is evil, but it's a dragon. What else is it supposed to be? Yeah, I, I really appreciated that. I there was Like you said, there was a lot that made me think the veterinarity section at the end I thought was really great. I also really, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like the humdrum evil and like the ways in which like the mob mentality and the death of the mind. There's this part where the Supreme Grandmaster, so it's the Supreme Grandmaster smiled in the depths of his robe. It was amazing, this mystic business. You tell them a lie and then when you don't need it anymore, you tell them another lie and tell them they're progressing along the road to wisdom. Then instead of laughing, they follow you even more, hoping that at the heart of all the lies, they'll find the truth. And bit by bit, the ex they accept the unacceptable. So that kind of has to do with what you were saying, too. Like this idea where there are certain ways in which people can be manipulated with a certain set of lies and saying like, oh, well, you're getting closer to the truth, right? And I think about like the ways in which like conspiracy theories have sort of taken over, especially in the US about like COVID or about the government or the ways in which like Facebook has really has really contributed to like the divisiveness and the sharing of like false information online. But this idea of like, oh, well, at the heart of all the lies, there's the truth. And but there is no truth at the heart of the lies, right? You're just being manipulated. I found that to be the truth may be out there, but the lies are in your mind. Yes, which is a something that will come up in a Terry Pratchett novel later on called, funnily enough, The Truth. Anything else you want to talk about, about Guards Guards? I don't think so. We covered a lot. There was a lot that was introduced in this novel. We did, like, an awful lot of this is kind of like the textual framework, and I feel like all of the references put together is very much like how Ankh-Morpork works as a city, where it's all all of these different cultures that have been assimilated and now just all exist together. I think that that's very true. And the ways in which we can switch from fantasy to noir and to, to slapstick to British sitcoms, but it's all sort of blended together in a way where you don't ever really notice the boundaries of where it's shifting. All right, next episode, we are taking a dive into one of the strangest novels of the Discworld, 1989's Pyramids, the first of the ancient civilizations branch of the Discworld series. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? Uh, you can find me mainly on Twitter, at SpicyNigel, where uh, recently I've been tweeting about my current holiday in Edinburgh, which I'm on at the moment, you know? Some of the stuff I haven't tweeted about, there's an awful lot I could have tweeted about my flight over here. Like, there was this six-year-old child or something who was standing in the aisle. She was in the row in front of me, and then when we were disembarking the plane, she got off. Uh, she got out of the row and was standing in the line, and she was like six. All these adults were with her, and she turned around to them and said in an extremely Scottish, very proper voice, said, Have we got everything? <laughs> 
that. That's so cute. Mm, yeah, and then in terms of podcasts, you can, can find my Magnus Archive show, Archive Admirers, everywhere you get your podcasts, and Hyperfixations, wherever you get your podcasts also. All right, you can find me on Twitter, at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, at Monkey Backlog, and on our website, which is www.monkeyoffmybacklog.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Nanny's Book Club, and on Instagram, at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can email us at nannyogsbookclub at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts on Guards Guards or any of the other Pratchett-related material that you would like to talk about. Please feel free to correct us if you know more about the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime or about any of the references that we didn't get in this book. We'd love to hear about them. All right, read us out, Nigel. I say Kingen's a good job, Nobby repeated. Short hours. Yeah, yeah. But not long days, said Colin. He gave Carrot a thoughtful look. Uh, there's that, of course. Anyway, my father says being king's too much like hard work, said Carrot. All the surveying and the saying and everything. He drained his pint. It's not the kind of thing for the likes of us. Us. He looked proudly. Guards. You all right, Sergeant? Hmm? What? Uh, yes. Colin shrugged. What about it, anyway? Maybe things turned out for the best. He finished the beer. Best be off, he said. What time is it? About twelve o'clock, said Carrot. Anything else? Carrot gave it some thought. And all's well, he said. Right, just testing. You know, said Nobby, the way you say it, lad, you could almost believe it was true. Let the eye of attention pull back. This is the disc, world and mirror of worlds, born through space on the back of four giant elephants who stand on the back of Great Atuan the Sky Turtle. Around the rim of his world, the ocean pours off endlessly into the night. At its hub rises the ten-mile spike of the Cori Celesti, on whose glittering summit the gods play games with the fates of men. If you know what the rules are, and who are the players. On the far edge of the disc, the sun was rising. The light of the morning began to flow across the patchwork of seas and continents, but it did so slowly, because light is tardy and slightly heavy in the presence of a magical field. On the dark crescent where the old light of sunset had barely drained from the deepest valleys, two specks, one big, one small, blew out of the shadow, skimmed low across the swells of the rim ocean, and struck out determinedly over the totally unfathomable, star-dotted depths of space. Perhaps the magic would last. Perhaps it wouldn't. But then, what does? The end. <laughs>